this this has been nothing but a series of talismans and voodoo witch doctor rituals that have literally no grounding in any kind of scientific method. It just we're just trying to like ward off evil spirits here like we're living in the 16th effing century. I mean, it's just stupid. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. And Flyover Country comes to you today from Louisville, Kentucky, home of protests and candidates being gunned at if you will, by uh, by former Black Lives Matter protesters. Hi, Scott. <laughs> Hello, Joe. We do, but we, we live in one of the most violent cities in America. I mean, that's the bottom line. This is one of the most violent, violent places you can live right now. As Scott Jennings, I'm Joe Arnold, your uh, roundtable host. Kevin Grout is back. Jared Crawford, uh, Dixon Fletcher behind the board. Welcome to all. And really a tumultuous week in, in Louisville, uh, Valentine's Day, as some national media covered this story. I want to talk to you about that, Scott, a little bit as far as the well, New York Times, Washington Post, some some broadcast coverage. Very, f- very few. Uh, CNN did a, a an interview with uh, the person who was the victim in this case, as well as uh, CBS did a, a, a brief thing on their Sunday morning or their, or their Tuesday morning newscast. But interesting as far as some of the news coverage here and what happened. What we're talking about is the the attempted assassination of a Democratic candidate for mayor in Louisville, Kentucky, named Craig Greenberg. Uh, Craig is one of a host of Democratic candidates, but the most well-funded and considered to probably be the, if not one of the top two or three uh, front runners there in, in the race for, for mayor. And on, on Monday, as he was uh, meeting with his staff uh, in Louisville, uh, just, I guess that's east of downtown, um, there, a, a, a person came into the office and uh, they re- greeted this person who was like standing in the door jam. And at that point, the person pulled a gun out and began firing shots right at Craig. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm, I don't know exactly what happened as far as my, I'm guessing he was diving out of the way because even though, thank God, he was unharmed physically in this altercation, one of the bullets actually put a hole in a sweater. So I'm, I'm just guessing that he's doing that. So before we get to, to some reaction here, he, he takes it from here as far as an interview with Terry Miners at WHAS radio earlier this week about uh, what happened then? There were four other teammates of mine that were in the office with me, and everyone contributed, um, slamming the door, and then we all turned over the desks and tables and chairs and immediately threw it up against the door to barricade ourselves in there. And I, I don't know, but I, th- I think at that point, and that's when the individual uh, fled. Um, but we're all fortunate for each other, and we are all blessed. So Craig Greenberg, again, I think doing a pretty remarkable job staying very composed. And I don't know how much he's uh, uh, surviving on adrenaline at this point about what happened to him. I happen to know him, his, his kids and my kids used to go to the same school. I actually ran into him at Kroger on Sunday before Super Bowl, and he was doing his shopping. I was doing mine and we kind of caught up over the lanes about what was going on. And I, you know, wished him well and said, we'll talk to you soon. And you, you and I, Scott, are both part of a local group in Louisville called Louisville Forum that will be hosting some debates later on in during the campaign and uh, told him about that. And then of course it was about 12 hours later is when the news came down about what happened there. As it turned out, it was uh, the person who was uh, behind the other side of the gun allegedly, but there doesn't seem to be much question about this is a former prominent um, activist in, in, in Louisville named Quintez Brown, 
who has written for the Courier Journal. He's very active in the Black Lives Matter movement. He was very active in the Brown and Taylor protests in, in downtown Louisville, and he has been arrested and charged with attempted murder and wanted endangerment in this case. Not only has he been arrested and charged with attempted murder, he's already out of jail. I mean, 48 hours after trying to gun down Craig Greenberg, a $100,000 bond was posted for Quintez Brown by this Louisville bail project. Jared knows about this and can talk about it. But basically, they scraped together hundred grand, and this guy walks out of a jail 48 hours. I mean, first of all, it's a miracle that Craig Greenberg is alive. In my, I mean, I mean, oh, this was no point question. blank. It was right there. It's a miracle. The courage displayed by Craig and his staff, I mean, commendable. And, and it's astonishing that, that no one was injured. Brown should not be free tonight. He should be in a jail. And, and what they're saying, what they're saying is, oh, essentially, well, you know, he, he needs mental uh, health treatment. We'll take it from here. No, no, that's not how this works. That's not how this works. He tried to kill a guy. He tried to kill it. And by the way, it's a fair question to ask about whether it was a hate crime. I mean, according to the Daily Beast reporting, Quintez Brown in recent days has been meeting with groups that are known anti-Semitic groups. Then that's like on Thursday. Then on Monday, he shows up and tries to kill Craig Greenberg, who happens to be one of the most prominent members of Louisville's Jewish community. Now, if you put shoes on different feet here, and different people tried to attack someone else, the Department of Justice would have relocated its headquarters to Louisville by now. Where are they? This this is quite possibly a hate crime. But tonight, tonight, the Black Lives Matter movement and the people surrounding Brown say, well, we'll take it from here. We'll get him the help he needs. No, don't worry. No, no, no. By the way, one more thing, and you guys can talk. <laughs> Just last year, Quintez Brown was most famous for disappearing. He literally disappeared for two weeks and was found on a park bench in New York City. So we've let someone out of jail who has a recent history of fleeing the state and disappearing. Louisville is one of the most violent places in America. This city is so violent that the most prominent gun control activists will try to murder you. That's how violent it is around here. And we let him out of jail despite all the circumstances I just described. This place needs to be turned upside down and shaken by the ankles. And we need to start over because whatever we're doing in this town on criminal justice right now is wrong and it's outrageous. And I think people are going to be pissed about this. Scott, you made the point in there that, you know, uh, some of his supporters, which is insane to say out loud that the man who just tried to assassinate a political candidate has supporters outside of his family. Right. Um, his supporters have made this case that he does not deserve to be in jail. I'm going to take a hard line stance right now. If you try to kill somebody, you deserve to be in jail. Yeah, uh, this is you know, there's become this kind of like soft on crime, tough on crime back and forth over the last few years. If the soft on crime crowd believes you try to kill somebody, you don't deserve to be in jail. I'm going to be on the other side of that. And and this is this has just become so insane the, the way that some people have talked about this issue is just remarkably disturbing. Uh, the unseriousness uh, of which some people are, are taking this to. It is truly, truly a miracle that Craig Greenberg is alive. I mean, there are less shots fired, you know, sometimes just into the air and kids are struck by bullets in this city and other cities. An absolute miracle. This is a dangerous person who at this time does not deserve to be on the streets, period. 
And we've seen it across the country, these bail projects that are getting people out on the streets uh, just have a terrible track record of repeat offenders. And I, I know in Frankfurt, they're, they're looking at whether or not there needs to be more restrictions or outlawing these groups altogether. It's um, a real problem that somebody can just be walking out free and there's no necessarily guarantee that they're getting any of this help that they so-called need. You know, the other part about this was very disturbing is not just, of course, the most disturbing thing is what happened to uh, Craig Greenberg and his staff on on Monday at their campaign office, but and, and as well as this reaction, but is is the fact that uh, is that this is being described by folks who are being critical, like we are, of being partisan. Now there is not a single political party being mentioned here in this conversation. This is not a partisan or political argument, as far as I'm concerned. This is a common sense. I mean, in the in the definition, as you pointed out, Jerry, basically, if, if you try to kill someone, I mean, what where is our barometer here? At what point where at what point we're going to change the bar where it doesn't even exist anymore? I, I don't doubt that he actually does need mental health oh. treatments. I don't doubt that one bit. But shouldn't we sort that out first? Right. And I don't know, a court of law using experts and, you know, people getting involved here as opposed to just taking someone's word for. By the way, we don't know where this bail money came from. These folks raise one hundred thousand dollars. They don't disclose, to my knowledge, Jared, Kevin, they're donors. So, any, you know, who, who put this money up? How did this guy get out of jail? He got secret donations through a group that says, we'll take it from here. I mean. I will tell you, when I watched the coverage in Louisville by some of the reporters who were tweeting out the the uh, the, the uh, walkout from jail, now he was first fitted with an ankle monitor, uh, but then walking to the car, there was someone singing, Oh, Happy Day. And it really had sort of the, the feeling of sort of a civil rights type of protest arrest release, where it seemed to be this person... He was wrongfully, you know, he's been wrong. It is an emblem yeah. of something else. And I'm saying is, and to your credit, Scott, as a prominent Republican nationally and CNN and other places, you have consistently um, criticized, vilified, excoriated, condemned the actions on January 6th. People who took violence, you know, and, and decided to overcome what they considered to be an injustice and, and did extraordinary violent criminal means. I wish that Democrats could follow your example and see beyond their own partisan benefit the way that you did taking on Donald Trump, taking on people who otherwise are going to say, gosh, he's a rhino now. He doesn't belong in this conversation. This is the moment where they need to have to step up and say, you know something? I believed in the concept of Black Lives Matter or the protests, but I have to stand on the side of what Jared was saying of what was plainly in front of you. And that is we are opposed to people trying to kill other people. At what point, if you can't agree upon that, I don't know what common ground we can reach. I mean, I mean, a fair question for this group is does Craig Greenberg's life matter? I mean, you know, the name of your group is black lives matter, but I want to know, do you think Craig Greenberg's life matter? Because it, it, it is a miracle that it wasn't taken. And I also would like to ask the people involved in this, does personal responsibility matter? I mean, at some juncture, we're all responsible for our actions. And again, I don't doubt that people who end up doing things like this, of clearly there's something gone haywire in their mind. But the purpose of a criminal justice system is to, you know, first and foremost, protect the rest of the community from people who are capable of this kind of violence. And, you know, he was caught with a gun, quite a bit of ammo. 
we know who he's been meeting with. We we know some of the things he's been written, you know, uh, some of the things he's he's on record as having written about how, you know, uh, we can't solve our problems at the ballot box. Uh, you know, it, it I, I mean, this this thing had, and he's disappeared before this thing. There is no conceivable way. Unless you are totally blind to what's going on here or completely selfish in your motives that you would think he should be out of jail in 48 hours before we can get an actual impartial entity involved to determine what is the right thing for the safety of the community. And I think you make an interesting connection. Uh, I mean, obviously, we don't know all the facts or the motives because there hasn't been a court of law, but equating it to other acts of political violence seems appropriate. And it's just a, a question that everybody has to ask. If someone is committing political violence, even if it's advancing a cause I might believe or support in, do you still have to condemn that cause? I would argue yes. I think Scott would argue yes. But it seems like there are too many people out there who are willing to excuse political violence if it advances their cause. Well, th this is this is the look. We're going to continue to have political violence because obviously there are enough people who will ride to your defense when you commit it that it makes it worthwhile to some people. Look, look, this January 6th business. We all saw what happened. Windows smashed, Capitol defiled, cops being assaulted and beaten. And then you have people come along and say, well, this is legitimate political discourse, or I might pardon you because you've been, you know, persecuted. Well, guess what? That's going to embolden the next round of people who want to sack the Capitol or commit some kind of political violence. The same thing is happening here. This guy tried to kill Craig Greenberg. And now you have people saying, well, we'll take it from here. Yeah, 48 hours. He needs to be out of jail. It's an injustice that he's in jail. I mean, <laughs> we, 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 here's the, we all live in fear. You know, I mean, we live in our discourse has been hijacked by bullies who have us all living in fear, fear of just telling the truth. You know, if you're a Republican, you have to live in fear of Donald Trump or, you know, his media enforcers. You know, if you're sitting here in Louisville, we all saw the riots and the protests and whatever in the summer of 2020. We were all it was the narrative was you have to call it peaceful or someone's going to come along and call you racist. They weren't peaceful. Some people there were buildings were looted. Property was destroyed. Business was were destroyed. Cops were shot. Uh, Brown was right in the middle of all that. I'm not saying he did anything violent during those protests, but what did he learn? He learned that you can commit political violence and a whole group of people will show up and say, no, 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 no. You didn't actually what we saw with our own eyes didn't actually happen. Or, so or it was it was justified. Or it was justified. So how corrosive is that for our discourse? So today, when you got a guy trying to assassinate Craig Greenberg, it's imperative that those of us who know what happened and know the truth are allowed to and can say it without fear of being ostracized. Especially for for a young man who was clearly caught up in the moment, who had bombastic rhetoric, right? Like there's so many people who sort of fed into this. And this is what happens when you feed the monster, right? Like this is, I mean, this is the worst possible scenario probably in the end, but when you feed the monster and you buy into this sort of bombastic rhetoric and you, you say, no, 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 this, everything's fine. And keep engaging in these, these, you know, unsafe activities. These are the really dangerous outcomes you get. I mean, I, I think the, the, one of the more offensive things to me too, is this, this bail project group, you know, see, seems to care to speak to, uh, social justice and caring about the community. I think they have community in their name too. Where was the community 
a few hours ago when you when you did this. I mean, it's just it's so offensive to me for for them to just I mean, not care. I at mean, all. are there more people rallying around the shooter here than rallying around Craig Greenberg? Yeah. I, I don't I, I think there is a real delicate balance here because people are still going to be afraid about not wanting to say what we're saying right now on this podcast. I might regret it later. Uh, but it goes back to all your points in terms of criminal justice reform and some of these issues we talk about. Unfortunately, I think we're conflating two different concepts of the reason why you put somebody in jail. There is a legitimate conversation and discussion to have about punishment versus rehabilitation for someone who is convicted of a crime. There is the other reason why you put someone in jail, and that is to keep them away from people and, and stopping them from harming them legitimately in the interest of public safety. I cannot think of a more likely candidate, a poster child for someone who needs to be behind bars and under control by someone other than his family who obviously can't control him. Right. They can't control him. I mean, they've right. never been able to. Right. right. And, and it's no offense to them. I can only imagine how difficult yeah. it is if you have somebody who is radicalized and saying, I don't know, whatever he is, he obviously, and no one's disputing the fact that he pulled the trigger, that he, that he was the, he was the gunman here. So it's just a question of what is the best place for him to be tonight after 48 hours after he tried to shoot a candidate for mayor? Is it with his family and, you know, getting the, the TLC from the people that, that he knows and loves, or is it under the control? Because again, this is not a personal or a civil case. This is a criminal case. This is different. This is about, this is not about just what he did to Craig Greenberg. It's what he does to our community, what that means for our own sense of public safety. Craig Greenberg was asked about this on that Terry Miner show as well, as far as what he thinks should be happening, his, his view of, uh, of accountability here. I don't know what led this individual who shot at me yesterday to, to that shooting. And I'm empathetic with whatever led him to that point. And I want to, as mayor, be part of the solution so that no one else finds themselves in that solution where they're whipping out a gun and shooting at somebody. So I want to be part of that solution so no one else does that to anyone else in our city. At the same time, actions have consequences. And it's not acceptable to open fire at other individuals. What is Craig Greenberg going through politically right now? I don't mean to step into this too, too quickly, but I sense there in that statement here, the guy is still again, like I said, I'm only assuming the adrenaline or just the PTSD that he might be going through after being, you know, the, the target of an assassination attempt and trying to respond to all this. And this interview, by the way, was like 24 hours after uh, it, it, it first happened here at the same time, it seemed to me, and I can't look into his heart or into his reasoning here, but he was really walking a really far. Which is sad, which is sad that a guy who just almost got murdered can't go on the radio and actually speak his mind. I mean, if anybody's earned a chance to say what really is the truth here, be honest about what happened, it's Craig Greenberg. But obviously, you know, he's he's concerned about how his words are going to be construed or twisted. I mean, think about the warped reality in which we live, in which we have to tiptoe, tiptoe around an attempted murderer I mean, the guy that's running for mayor, who, by the way, is the leading candidate. I mean, let's be honest. He's likely going to be the next mayor. And and he can't go on the radio and, like, you know, just kind of empty his heart and tell us what's really on Say, his mind. Say, shooting at me is bad. Please don't do it again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and, and also, what – I mean, if I were going to run the city of Louisville, I would wonder, what message does this send to the next person who pulls a trigger in this city? 
you can get out of jail in 48 hours. If I had a client, if I were a lawyer and had a client before a judge, well, you just let this guy out in 48 hours. I, I mean, why can't we scrape together bail here? Get get my client out in 48 what, what message did we send? Is it that bad in Louisville? Do we have that many shootings? Can the jail not hold all the shooters? Maybe that's I, – I, I, the, the message here all around is horrific. And I just – you asked about the politics of this. I don't know what Greenberg's going through exactly, but I'll tell you what the city is going through. I, I – I, I think the city is going through what a lot of cities are going through, where you expect people, you know, we, we expect Louisville to generally be a liberal or Democrat leaning town. My guess is there's a lot of people out there thinking twice tonight, just like they did in San Francisco. I know we're going to talk about it, just like they did on the San Francisco school board recalls, just like they did in a few places back in November where you didn't expect Democrat voters to vote Republican but they did because they're fed up with this, with what's being crammed down their throats by the progressives who are strangling the Democratic Party. I think politically, uh, Greenberg has made public safety one of the kind of pillars of, of his uh, campaign, which, frankly, I really appreciate. Uh, to be honest, it's not something that you hear Democrats talk a lot about uh, gun violence, urban or you hear gun violence, but not urban violence, especially not gang violence. And so I appreciate him trying to lump this issue in with what we consider sort of uh, more traditional gang and street violence. To Greg, though, this is a different situation. This is driven by different motives, clearly uh, is a different sort of actor. The situation is much different. You can take this personally, right? I mean, if that would be my sort of political advice to him, I, I appreciate him trying to lump this in with a larger conversation about urban violence. And, and I think he has, frankly, some some interesting and uh, proven solutions there. But take this one personally. You're allowed to, you know. To me, it's okay to be a Black Lives Matter participant, uh, you know, empathizer, sympathizer, or, or involved with that and still be opposed to a mayoral candidate being almost shot to death. It's okay. It's okay to condemn that. It's okay to, I mean, at some point. It's okay to say this guy doesn't represent us. It's okay to separate yourself from somebody. But they did the opposite. They went and got him out of jail. They went and got him out of jail. Because I guess, I guess you're, you know, everything has to be defended at all. You have to die on every hill. I am, I hate, I hate to say this out loud because I'm afraid I'll, I'll, I'll will it into being here. I just pray for our community's sake, and this is our hometown, that the Quintez Brown doesn't somehow become a cause celeb, you know, somehow a symbol of something greater because. Or like he's turned into the victim here. Right, right. And I, that would but, be tragic. Yeah, I, but I can I can see a path where that would happen. Oh, yeah. And it has uh, for whatever a variety of reasons. But any last words from anybody on this? Uh, well, let me ask. I have an exit question. Yeah, yeah. What are the odds Quintez Brown never steps foot inside a jail again? I'd say it's non-zero. I would say that, first of all, in my opinion, he shouldn't have been, obviously, uh, if, if in fact his own attorney talks about him being seriously mentally ill during his, you know, the first hearing, then I think we all agree then that he needs to be in custody in a, a, a mental facility I mean, his, to his, take care of that. So I like, guess what I'm saying is I would see, since that's the kind of the, the predicate of all this is that. It's it, he will end up not in jail, but I, I think he'll end up in custody, but he might be in, in some treatment center. Well, who knows how serious is. I mean, I don't know if he's mentally ill or not. I know if I were his defense lawyer, I'd want to go ahead and condition the jury pool to believe that. Right. 
I mean, that's that's their best defense because there's no dispute about what happened here. So why do I have to take his lawyer's word for it? his lawyer's not a doctor? I mean, I haven't heard a doctor say I evaluated him and he's seriously. I don't I haven't heard that. But that's the prevailing narrative that that's where they're headed. They're already they're already trying to set up a narrative here where he was failed. He was failed by the community. So does he end up in jail? I, I'm if there's enough people out there with respect for the system. Yes, I'll say yes. Yeah, I think it's probably too high profile of a case. Even if one judge fumbles it, there may be another prosecutor who finds to bring some sort of federal charges or something like a hate crime uh, that we see uh, where a federal prosecutor could bring those sorts of charges. So even if a if a judge here fumbles it or there's more evidence, there's a chance there's more evidence that this was a hate crime than there ever was for the Border Patrol being accused of whipping people on horseback. There's more evidence this is a hate crime. And in that case, the president of the United States took to the airwaves to denounce those Border Patrol agents with not a shred of evidence, real evidence, that they were actually doing what they were accused of doing. There's more evidence here this was a hate crime. But yet we're tiptoeing around this. We're tiptoeing around the fact that somebody met with anti-Semitic groups on a Thursday and shot a Jewish candidate for mayor on a Monday. I mean, I'm just, I am outraged. By the way, I know Craig Greenberg too. He's a nice guy. I think he's got a good heart and, and, and you know, different political persuasion. He doesn't deserve this. And this community doesn't deserve this. But I'm with you, Joe. I, if this gets turned into a cause celeb, it'll be tragic for Louisville. We should not be known for the people that coddle attempted murderers. You mentioned San Francisco and the voters there who have uh, thrown out of office three school board members in a recall vote. <laughs> That's me clapping. <laughs> and you don't even have to say, please clap. That's okay. me clapping. I, 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 the, the lights were coming off and on, so I wasn't sure what that was all about. But uh, all about, this is this is a school board, and, and you guys might know more of the history of it than I do, but you know they had proposed renaming schools that had been named after George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, certainly in the masking requirements. When, when were they renaming those schools? This is the critical issue. While the schools were shut down oh, yes. during the pandemic. They, they, were, they were more concerned about ripping down the names of Washington and Lincoln than they were about opening up those schools. It, it was really incredible. The woke, I mean, that's like woke DEFCON 1. I mean, that's, <laughs> that is as woke as it gets. So what does this say then about, and it, this goes back to your point, Scott, I'll ask Jared, what does this say about the ability of people to, if, if pushed hard enough, to see beyond their usual partisan lanes and say, okay, enough's enough. Yeah. And I also think when you mix in people's kids too, right? I mean, that, uh, as we mentioned last week, I'm the only one without children here, but I uh, can imagine that, you know, when you start to, to impact your kids' lives and outcomes and mental health and, and all those sorts of things, even, you know, sports, extracurricular, I mean, taking all of that away from your kids, I imagine that really hits home. I, I, I don't know if I made this point last week, too. It just feels like every day that they go to, they're losing more people, right? Like all of these, the, you know, the COVID maniacs, the, the keep everything closed forever people are just losing more people every single day because somebody realizes there'll always be that fringe that they can go back to. But now I could speak from personal experience on this because I'm often on the losing end of arguments at home. <laughs> and amen, brother. You're, you are recalled every night. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, and, and here's the difference. And, and maybe every husband listening and wife understands this. You have to make a decision at some point to say, I was wrong. And that there's a difference between saying I was wrong and saying, 
you win or okay, or you're going to make that change. And I think what, what, what's happening here is a, it's very difficult. Even if after you've been chagrined in some way or another to think that, wait a second, did I just spend the last two years of my life on the wrong side of a battle? And I think this is sort of the, 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 this is the, the, the conundrum politically for some of these people because they truly believe even today to their core that these, these shutdowns and the masking of children and all the different restrictions of our life and the lockdowns that were put in place, well, that was still right. That was still the right thing to do. And, and, and that's the problem is, is that in, unless they truly have some conversion and understand maybe it wasn't a good idea, then I think some of these parents are going to say, no, you were on the wrong side and you're going to pay a price for it. The, 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 the data, by the way exists for everything you just said to prove that they were on the wrong side of this. The lock, there was a study out of Johns Hopkins mm -hmm. proving that the lockdowns had no measurable impact on stopping the spread. Which Facebook has flagged as missing context. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yes. uh, we, now, we now, if you look at the mask mandate data tracking for places that had it, don't, that the lines on the graph are exactly the same. I mean, very, very, you know, minuscule differences. Uh, and we also now have data, we, re we know that the shutdowns of schools had a massive detrimental impact on the mental health and education outcomes for students, especially the poorest students in the country. So there's plenty of data for people to say, you know what? I, the data tells me I was wrong. For all the people that were out screaming, the science, the science. Well, we now have data that explains how they were wrong. But I'll just to answer your question, here's, here's the deal. What we learned in San Francisco is that people will almost always put their partisan interests behind what's in the best interest of their children. When you have kids, yes, you can be a strong partisan and have strong conservative or liberal views, but you will absolutely do what's best for your kid, no matter what your personal politics of the moment are. And that is what happened in San Francisco. And that's what it's a direct effect of the school board members, just like we've seen them across the country, following what their unions are saying and not listening to the people they're actually supposed to represent. I'd also say it looks very similar to the New York election last year in deep blue New York, where they voted down measures to defund the police. Right. Because education, public safety, these real issues that affect you know their families and their kids, people are going to put partisanship aside and just vote what actually makes sense. Of course, going back to all this, you know, in terms of there were certainly the, the idea that the, these notions that this is harmful for children and, and and the masks were ineffective are new concepts. They're only new concepts for the people who chose not to pay attention to more than one scientific argument. There was plenty of science that was going on a long time ago, but that science back to the first conversation we had was not allowed to be spoken of. I mean, these these little kids are more likely statistically to get killed in a car accident than they are to die of COVID. I mean, that, that is just a fact. They've always been less vulnerable to this than the most, you know, the people that are immunocompromised, elderly, have comorbidities. That, that, that's, been a, that's been a fact from the beginning. And, and it was especially exacerbated after the vaccines. Once the teachers and the other person on the school had access to the vaccines, these arguments for shutting down schools really went out the window, but people stuck with it. It was, it became religion. It became religion, not and, science. And, and moralistic in the sense that, and even frankly, from not just science officials, medical officials, politicians, but, uh, but other thought leaders, other media types, it became sort of this, this consensus as to say, if you care about other people, then you will do this. 
if you are a selfish, uncaring person, then you will do this other thing. And that's unfortunate because obviously there was more, there were people who were equally concerned about the health outcomes and the well-being of our society who had legitimate differences of opinion about the best way to go about that. But instead, one side was condemned as being unselfish or being selfish and uncaring. And the other side was being was following the science. Imagine. So you got 70 percent for recall on these San Francisco elections. And these are the San most, Francisco, these are the most liberal people in the country. Frisco, Imagine what happens when regular folks live out here in middle America, get a hold of these, ele- these, all these right. ballots in November, it's going to be absolutely ugly. And you, and you raised a, an issue earlier that, that's worth discussing. So all these Democrat governors, all these, they're all trying to now rush to lift the mandates and try to get on the right side of this. I don't think it's going to work. I think people are going to remember who shut down my kid's school, who put a mask on my kid every day, even when we knew, we knew that it made no difference whatsoever. Who did this? Who shut down my business? Who cost me my livelihood? And you come along at the end of the game and say, well, hey, you know, well, I know we dug an enormous hole for you, but here's a little ladder for you. It's not going to work. I mean, look, look at the polling. This is one of the reasons Biden's in the toilet. He's sticking with it. He's, he's going to be the last one to, you know, the last one to leave the party uh, is holding the bag, holding the check. It's going to be Joe Biden. All these Democrat governors are rushing to beat him out of the exit here. He's going to be the last one. The bloodbath in this election is if San Francisco's any indication. And by the way, Virginia last year and New Jersey and what happened in the other municipal elections around the country, the evidence is clear. People are out to punish those who made us miserable for little to no reason. Yeah, I think the kind of woke uh, politicians are in for a really rude awakening in the next few elections. Uh, The Manhattan Institute did some polling on metropolitan areas uh, maybe six months ago. And the reality is most of these people are pretty moderate. They want to fund the police. They want they kind of like school choice. And, you know, they have kind of moderate views. They don't you know, think school choice is racist. They don't want to defund the police. All those, you know, sort of like really radical woke ideas. They don't think uh, like racial equity is infrastructure. They think bridges are infrastructure. And so I think these like woke politicians, you saw this a little bit with the election of, of Eric Adams, who was much more moderate pro police. He was MoMA. He was yeah. moderate. Yeah. He's rapidly running the wrong way. I was going to say, well, yeah, we'll see how he governs. Uh, but I, I do think it, it running well, running woke, I guess, is, is I will describe it. it. Those people are going to be in for a rude awakening. Do you think this, this is a really kind of a tangent question here for you politicos, but, but bear with me here for a minute. I'm just curious because the general, what I understand, at least from, from most people who follow this, is that wokeness is, in, is inherent in being uh, you know a voter under the age of 25. If you're a high school student today, a college student today, you're woke and it's, it's very, very rare if, if, if you're not. And that's so my question is, does does any of this experience, because they're the people in college or in high school right now who have gone through all this. Do you think this is going to be a, a reckoning or a, a an offer, a, a, a different path for that for that thinking? Because I'm, I'm just saying that there's kind of a, just a prevailing wisdom that that's what the, that was the sort of the mindset of that generation. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, some of these kids like miss their high school graduations. You know, their final year of playing high school sports was robbed from them. Uh, their college experience, you know, um, you know, they, they go to campus, but they, they're trapped in their dorms and they have to eat by themselves and they're not allowed to socialize. I mean, you think about what you expected to get out of life and what you're allowed to get out of life. I don't 
think people forget that. I actually think it's going to stick with folks. And to your point, and as a, I'm a parent of, a, of two teenage uh, boys, is that you forget sometimes when you begin, become an adult and, and, the, and the older that you get, you know, the, a, a year is not that big of a percentage of your life. But when you're Heck, you're young kids when they're in kindergarten. Well, I've got I've got a five year old who's in kindergarten, so you know forty percent of his life has been taken up with his nonsense. That's what I'm saying, and for, and especially for those key and frankly, we gotta figure out how to get him to vote. That's woke. That's woke. Five year old to the polls. But I, I remember though talking about um, you know the um, when when my both of my sons entered high school, the head of the school talked about these four years of your of, of your sons' lives are as basically as crucial developmentally as the first four years of their life. This is the time of adolescence when this all. So I have to wonder about this impression. Of course, it's everyone's experiencing within their own two or three years or whatever we're going through here. But who's going to what are you going to remember about this time and who are you going to how is it going to affect the rest of the way you look at the world? You know, that's a longer existential question. I must. Yeah, I'll be curious about to see how this all shakes out. Well, I I think, um, you know, I also think on the flip side of that, parents who had kids that were already struggling Mm -hmm. with school, you know, already struggling with, you know, their learning, already struggling with to make it. And parents knowing that if my kid can just make it, if can just get through this, like their life outcomes are going to be so much better. And then this comes along. Schools are shut down. These kids end up, you know, that were just over the line. Now, all of a sudden. Uh, educational outcomes, you know, go way under. They Some don't go back to school. Some aren't going to finish. I mean, if you're a parent and you fought and you struggled to get your kid over that line and you got right to the end of the journey and the friggin' government showed up and said, nope, we're going to destroy your kid's life after all the work and struggle you and he or she put in. I mean, think about that will never, that will never leave you. Viewers of CNN may have seen Scott Jennings uh, on Wednesday night uh, talking about a, a group of Republican senators sending a letter to the Justice Department earlier this week to express strong opposition to creating a federal no-fly list for unruly passengers. Yeah. What does that mean? Uh, <laughs> but it all bears it all it all links to, of course, the mask mandate and how certain people have reacted to this. So, Scott, first of all, interesting topic for conversation. I always find it interesting uh, that the, the things that are chosen about to, on on the on your CNN panels there, but. Uh, it is something which people can relate to. People are fascinated with airplanes because a couple of weeks ago, the debate was, should we have a vaccine mandate to get on an airplane? And the person I was on with was, of course, uh, two weeks ago, arguing for vaccine mandates. And tonight she was arguing for <laughs> for uh, unruly passengers to be put on no fly lists. And my position was, and they only let me talk once. My, my <laughs> position was that, number one, if you put your hands on somebody, if you're violent, if you... You know, we saw the famous video a couple of weeks ago of the woman like having a meltdown spitting on the guy, you know, because she was freaking out about his mask. I mean, th- there's certain she was freaking out because she didn't think that his mask w- was on consistently enough because he was eating. And then she had a meltdown and was spitting on the guy was spitting on him. And so I think somebody who demonstrates that level of violence toward another human, whether it's another passenger or a flight attendant, number one, they should be prosecuted. Number two, that probably warrants some exclusion for some period of time. But where this gets a little squirrely is how do you define unruly? Because I have witnessed interactions on airplanes that you might, some people might consider unruly, but they were just brief overheated moments because either a passenger got a little overheated or a flight attendant got a little overheated. And my argument on CNN tonight was you want to, because most of these complaints with the FAA, and there's a bunch of them, are all related to mask disputes. 
So I'll you tell you what they are. This? The numbers: more than 5,981 5, reported cases of unruly passengers last year. Of those five nine eighty one, four thousand two hundred ninety, they say were mask related. Yeah. So here's how you fix it: have the FAA end the stupid mask mandate, and then you won't have people mad about it, and you won't be putting flight attendants in the position of essentially serving as the FAA's stupid mask police. These masks are not necessary on airplanes. You get on a plane, most of the people are wearing cloth masks, which they now call facial decorations or fashion. They being these medical experts. Medical experts. And us. And us. (laughs) But medical experts. The same medical experts who, by the way, call for lockdowns. Yeah. They're saying that these so, you you know, I mean, if I were Joe Biden, this might be how I open the State of the Union. Ladies and gentlemen, the State of the Union is this. No more masks on airplanes. I mean, he'd probably go up by five points because every – I mean, you get on a plane and you're looking around. Everybody knows it's a friggin' charade. It's theater. It's useless. So we all then, – then the pilot has to make the announcement. Well, folks, you got to wear your mask because the, the FAA says so. And then the stewardesses or uh, flight attendants are put in the position of – you know, over your nose, over your nose. It creates the dumbest, stupid charade, and everybody knows how stupid it is. End the mandate now. That was my position. Kevin. I think you're, you're, you're pro, but you're pro security at the airport. <laughs> I, I mean, you, you've always been arguing for more like stormtrooper-like activity at the airport. Stormtrooper, as long as, you know, the Star Wars team is playing in the background. <laughs> No, I, I think masks on airplane are ridiculous, especially because there's been that spike once the mask mandate went into effect. I think the, the numbers have spiked of these uh, confrontations on airplanes. I think last year was the biggest number uh, in uh, in recent memory. So clearly there's a correlation between yes. enforcing the masks and, ma- and deputizing every flight attendant uh. Uh, to, to make sh- make these be worn. Um, yeah. Take your mask off and uh, temperature will go down. I mean, what would happen, by the way, if you got on a big airplane? And literally everybody just refused to put it on. I guess they wouldn't take off. They wouldn't right? take off. But I think it's these people who are calling for the no fly list, calling for the mass mandates that I think just don't want to fly with a lot of people. And might I say, don't want to fly with a lot of Republicans. Oh, don't want to be around a lot of no, Republicans. It's the, same, it's the same people who wanted the vaccine mandates. They just literally want everyone they hate to not be allowed to go to the airport. Yeah. <laughs> I, here's my uh, this is kind of my one of the week. We might have to put this in the soundboard. Scott nailed this again. Um <laughs> Look, I don't think anybody objects to having people who should be on the no fly list, right? Like, I think that makes sense to a lot of people. If you're truly violent or you've, you know, you, you were three sheets to the wind and, you know, could, they couldn't, all, all those things, right? We see these videos. They happen before, they're going to happen after. The mass stuff has just created these little blips. Get rid of the mass stuff. There will be people who in the future you can still ban. You know, who were, don't worry, you can still I mean, ban yes, people all you want, I mean. says Jared. My <laughs> argument with this, though, is don't be a jerk. This goes to everybody. Don't be a jerk flight attendant. Don't be a jerk passenger. At this point, the rules in place. And when you get on the plane, put on your mask because that's just the way that it is. Don't fight it. Don't don't don't. No, 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 no. Wait a minute. What? So your argument is, well, if it's a rule, line, I guess we better Joe. follow yes. it. If it's, a, if, it's such, line, I mean, honestly, if it's a rule on the if if what 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 the debate is though is the rule stupid. I agree. And the rule, the is rule stupid. needs to be stopped. The rule needs to be overturned. But while it's, I'm saying is this: is there are some people who get emboldened and radicalized <laughs> by <laughs> such conversations as to think, "Yep, this is my day. This is my Alamo moment." I'm going to get on that plane and I'm going to, I'm going to say, 
F you to that stewardess. Or that, I, uh, I, I hear you. you know? So I'm saying is there's plenty of people out there. And, there, and there's, that said, if you're a flight attendant, don't be a jerk about it. I've seen plenty of flight attendants who have been jerks. What is it going on? That's right. <laughs> who have been jerks the empire this. is here. No. I'm saying is don't be a don't be a jerk. I think you turn my microphone on when you turn the storm off and you put the stormtroopers on. But and the, the problem is, is we're raising this level of anxiety and 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 just hating each other. I mean, flights for some of us, and you could be you should be excited about where you're going. So here's the but here's the thing. And, and the debate we were having on TV was, what is the definition of unruly? Right. And so I've, I have seen, I've been on plane most every week for a lot of months now. And, and I have seen various level of interactions, all of which could be defined generally as unruly. But in my mind, I'm like, well, A, whose fault was it? And B, is it, is it unruly enough that it would warrant someone being put on a no-fly list, which you know is going to follow them around for the rest of their life? And who is the arbiter of that? Like, can a, f- a flight attendant just put you on the list because she doesn't like you? Because I'm telling you, I've seen interactions where that absolutely would have happened. And I and I'm not and I'm not arguing that the person wasn't being a jerk. But is that is being a jerk for five seconds enough to get you banned from airplanes for life? Yeah, I mean, flying is already bad enough. I mean, I don't know how, where you guys fall on this. I hate from like the moment I step into the airport to the moment I land and finally get out. Here, here's maybe my trade offer. Expand the no fly list, but get rid of TSA, right? Like if you're going to make it like, let's get some trade offs here. I'll give you, I'll give you my offer now. If you'd like to hear it, my offer is nothing. I give you nothing. You will get no masks. You will get no TSA. I want freedom at the airport. Now I said before I'm a rule follower, but I will tell you that I always find exceptions to rules. So when I fly, I make it a point to have many snacks and I am basically chewing on uh, a piece of licorice or a pretzel for most of the flight. So I'm <laughs> I saw say- I saw a guy on the internet the other day. He literally got a single French fry. Yeah, and like had yeah. it like hanging yes. out of his mouth for the entire flight. <laughs> That's me. That's me. I mean, I mean it That's was right. so it was so brilliant. But but it also speaks to the absurdity of all That's of this. That's right. I mean, it, and it also goes to the absurdity of the mask in general. Like we go to a restaurant. You got to wear it when you're standing up, but when you're sitting down, COVID goes right over your head. You know. I mean, it, it's like this is this this has been nothing. But a series of talismans and voodoo witch doctor rituals that have literally no grounding in any kind of scientific method. It just we're just trying to like ward off evil spirits here, like we're living in the 16th effing century. I mean, it's just so stupid, and it, and it's like it's happening on airplanes right now. I'm telling you, it's about to end. Joe Biden, it's about to end. Go up to the rostrum at the State of the Union. Take the mask, like rip it off, burn it, say, do not get on an airplane with it, freedom. You'll go up to at least 43%, which is like five points better than you are right now. (laughs) Well, and circling back to some of the San Francisco school board stuff and with this, this has become so cliche, but it's the continuing, continually moving of the goalposts. Remember when Joe Biden told us, get your vaccine or wear your mask. And it was like, okay, we got our right. vaccine. It's like, well, no, you still got to wear your mask. It's like, wait, hold on. Wait, 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 no, no, no. That's the, you know, it's the, remember when we were told teachers had to skip the line for vaccines so schools could be open. And we were like, cool. That makes, that makes a lot of sense actually. And then the teachers unions fought against the vaccine yes. mandates for teachers. <laughs> I mean, it's I mean just, it, it was outrageous. By the way, speaking of the Bidens on masks, I mean, Jill Biden, 
God bless them. Jill Biden was out on the front lawn of the White House the other day. I saw a picture. She's wearing a mask outside, walking around the front lawn. Even the CDC and all of its stupidity managed to find a way to put on its own website, hey, if you're outside, you don't really need to wear a mask. And yet, Joe walks around the beach in a mask. She's walking around the front lawn in a mask. I don't understand. What message do they think they're sending? I called you during the Super Bowl and are texted and, and said, this seems to me to be America's, I mean, ahead of the State of the Union, this is America's reopening party. Yes. It was very clear at that point. If okay, LeBron just, James doesn't need a mask, my four-year-old kid at the preschool certainly doesn't need a mask. There ain't 70,000 people at my kid's preschool, I can assure you. We've spent a lot of time on these things here. I do want to get a quick uh, thought from you, or each of you, about the Sarah Palin uh, uh, verdict against the New York Times. The Kind of an odd kind of a rollout of that, because this, is a, this of course, is the uh, the the defamation case there where the New York Times had linked her to a to a shooting because of a I guess a fundraising email that was out there that you maybe use some crosshairs you know imagery anyway uh, I might get myself sued here by Sarah Palin <laughs> if, I'm not, if I'm not careful the, the the interesting rollout of this though Kevin was that the judge actually issued basically dismissed the case before the jury came back with their verdict. Right. He, he said he was going to dismiss it while the jury was in deliberations. And apparently a few of the jurors were getting push notifications on their phone and saw them uh, before they came back and decided to uh, rule for the New York Times. They claimed that the push notifications, hearing that the judge in their case uh, cited one way, had no no effect on their opinion. I don't know how I believe that, um, but it, it, this case could get appealed. We could continue hearing more about Sarah Palin, but uh, I think the New York Times might have gotten off easy here. Uh, it was their their argument was it was sloppy and not malicious. Either way, that doesn't look good for the paper of record. The judge actually, when he dismissed it, excoriated the New York Times and said, I, I really think they acted egregiously here, but I'm bound by the law. And which I thought was a, an interesting commentary. If you look at the, te- I, I follow this very closely. I read all the testimony. I know Bennett, the op-ed page editor, we were fellows together at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. Nice guy, had a lot of great conversations with him. What they did here. Oh my God. I mean, but it, but it, but it is the natural, I mean, it's exactly what you think would happen. People who are trapped by narratives instead of facts who have access to writing things for the New York Times. I mean, that and and it's not just them. It's a lot of media outlets. They're trapped by narratives and not trapped by facts. And that is a problem. And I know it's the opinion page, but just because it's the opinion page don't mean you get to make crap up. I, I hope this gets appealed because I actually think we need a little bit more. I mean, like I'm a First Amendment guy, but. At at some juncture, you know, what we're saying about people and just because they have to be, quote, public figures, it's not right. uh, That's always been for constitutional law or those of us who studied, you know, media law and that kind of thing. That obviously is the the difference here. To me, it's almost it's less about whether it was malicious or defamatory than it was. Who is Sarah Palin is the question. In other words, if if this was if she was a, a, a citizen that was not as well known or considered to be a political figure. Then the case against the New York Times would be far stronger. Yeah, I think Scott's final point too there that it feels like we're sort of waiting for you know somebody big to get held accountable for one of these. Like it feels like they happen kind of frequently, and they never nobody ever kind of you know has to. Well, there's a bunch face of the consequences. There's a bunch of issues here because you've got you know like old old school media outlets like the New York Times. That, you know, we may want to look at the standards around that. But also, there are, like, people that operate massive social media accounts that say things about people. 
And, you know, for for all intents and purposes, they are a media outlet. You know, LeBron James has issued some tweets that are beyond the pale. Other celebrities have done it. So I actually wonder you know, broadly here if there isn't a larger discussion to be had about if you're somebody that has the capacity at the in your pocket, you could pull it out and within seconds literally ruin somebody's life. What are the standards around that? And what is the recourse for people who are the ones being ruined? And I I, I, I mean, you know, when when uh, Times v. Sullivan was um, was uh, written years, I mean, there were no you know, there was no the, the stuff didn't rocket around the world as instantly as it does now. And stuff, you know, it, it's harder to put things back in the toothpaste, back in the tube now than it's ever been. And so, I, therefore, the implications of your negligence are are far more instant and and broad. Yeah, the the first tweet always gets a million retweets, and the apology of the correction gets like five. Gets like five. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Totally. Uh, any anything you guys have seen, read, or heard this week you want to share? Um. Yeah, I'm. I'm reading a book while I'm listening to a book, uh, called what got you here. Won't get you there. Uh, it's about developing leadership skills and, uh, leaders need to be empathetic and listening and not just good at their jobs. Uh, been a good read so far. I'm still uh, hacking through the Jeremy Peters book insurgency, how Republicans lost their party and not every, and got everything they ever wanted. And it's, it's interesting to hear Jeremy go. I'm, I'm, about halfway through it right now. And and some of the things I think Jeremy gets right, but he, <laughs> the most notable thing in the book so far is, is his recounting of some of Donald Trump's early encounters with conservatives and conservative groups in the early part of the 2016 primary and how, you know, he literally said all the wrong things to the evangelical Christians and to the pro-lifers. And, the, and yet it did not matter one bit. It's kind of a fascinating, like, you know, to go back in time and remember just what an apostate he was on all these issues. And yet it did not matter one bit. So I'm I'm not reading this yet, but um, I mentioned this in the show notes. P.J. O'Rourke passed away this week. Brilliant, conservative, satirical writer. Hilarious, too, by all accounts. Um, I ordered his latest or, or last book, A Cry from the Far Middle, Dispatches from a Divided Land. Um, but there is in this book uh, a quiz to determine whether you're a coastal or a heartlander. And so we might have to do a little bit <laughs> of live on the air. Uh, a quiz? Uh, yeah, whenever, whenever it comes in, it should be in probably That's great. tomorrow. That's great. So um, RIP to PJ Rourke, who is just brilliant, hilarious. Um, but uh, he he will live on through his work. For those folks who followed um, the Senate race in Kentucky here a couple of years ago between Mitch McConnell and Amy McGrath, might be interested in a new uh, article <laughs> in the New Republic uh, a few days ago where McGrath uh, tells the author that she considered not running for Senate against Mitch McConnell, but running for president that year. At the time, she says, I was weighing it. There were probably 25 people running for president. But here in Kentucky, there were not 25 people running against Mitch. There was another factor that I had the ability to fundraise, which was so important. And of course, fundraise she did, Scott, because she brought in a record I mean, trouncing the record of all records in terms of raising campaign cash in Kentucky, I believe like ninety three million dollars in that race against Mitch McConnell. You know, there was somebody I got to I got to look this up. Some political analyst at the time of the of the Senate race actually uh, um, put out a theory that if you're Amy McGrath, you you have basically a zero percent chance of winning the Senate race in Kentucky. But you have enough. But you have the same level of funding or more than most of the Democratic candidates for president there. And you have a non-zero chance of winning the primary. So therefore, 
it would be much wiser mm-hmm. to be in that race because you're going to get thumped in Kentucky, but you might put up a, a valiant effort, even if you don't win, and, and do yourself some personal good in a presidential primary. It's interesting, of course, from a national audience perspective, there are certain names that we've gotten to know of people because of national fundraising commercials, because of appearances on certain networks. There's a like a Beto O'Rourke, that, that, that kind of folks. You know, you have to wonder if an Amy McGrath, even at this point, would position herself as being a potential presidential candidate. You know, it's sort of these, one of these gadflies well, out there. She well, she nailed still, that Samantha Bee appearance. So. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm saying is, but she's not running for office in Kentucky at that point. She, she, and she would have to concede, I'm not going to win Kentucky. She wasn't going to anyway. Yeah. But she might win a few other states. You know, she, she in a presidential primary for the, like for the Democrats too, at the national level, she could have actually been who she really is, which is an extreme friggin' liberal. Now in Kentucky, they try to run her as a, as a moderate and it was just a huge flop because, you know, she was not authentically moderate. She's not even I mean, I mean she couldn't even pretend. I mean, it, I mean, she is a real liberal and probably would have had more room to run in a Democrat presidential primary than she ever had in a Senate. Race. I believe she still has like 15, 20 million dollars in her. No, 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 no. I think I think I think it's it was less. But I was think, it? didn't they disgorge? Didn't they? Oh, did they? Okay. I, I don't remember. But it, it, they it couldn't. Spend, all I know is they couldn't spend. Oh, all. she ended with several million. Uh, several of the Democrats did, actually. The the, the candidate in Maine, the candidates, uh, I think, North Carolina, I mean, uh, South Carolina, Harrison. I mean, some of these people that got blown out ended the race with millions in the bank, which is just amazing. That's Scott Jennings. Kevin Grados here. Jared Crawford, Dixon Fletcher. Thank you for your help behind the board. I'm Joe Arnold. Listen to the Flyover Country podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, on Twitter, you want, we want to hear your comments. That's at the flyover pod at the flyover pod. Scott, take us home. Yep. This week we uh, released a great interview with Dr. Jason Fung, a noted author of several books and most notably the obesity code, which Joe Arnold and I talked to Jason Fung about and uh, our journeys uh, and experiments with intermittent fasting. So it was a great interview. Uh, we're going to have another roundtable next week. And then coming up, we'll have some special, a special guest panelist around uh, the State of the Union, and I am proud to say that we are having Mary Catherine Ham on the show uh, in a bit. I'm going to interview Mary Catherine. If you uh, watch CNN and other cable outlets and read some conservative political commentary, you've probably run across Mary Catherine. She is one of the best people in this business. I have really enjoyed getting to know her. She's a, a, a really amazing story and is a, just a very nice person. And so uh, Mary Catherine's coming on, and uh, we'll look forward to bringing that to you here on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure your seat backs and folding trays are in their full upright position. Cabin crew, please take your seats for landing and thank you for choosing Flyover Country with Scott Jennings.